can have a seat, and as you do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you, sing to you, celebrate you, we thank you, we worship you, because you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our lives, you're worthy for us to follow you, for us to give our heart, soul, mind, strength, resources, everything in our lives we give to you, for you have first given it to us. We worship you not just as the baby who was born, we worship you as the King who has come, the Savior who has laid down His life for our sins so that we might know forgiveness and joy for all eternity. We thank you for the gospel story in all of its parts from beginning to end, and we pray that you would press it into our hearts and souls even more. Lord, I pray that I would say now true things about you. Give me accuracy, give me a balance of the simplicity yet complexity of your nature and who you are, your person and your glory. And I pray that as we think true thoughts about you, that as we know true things from your word, that you would light a flame in us that would burn brightly for your glory. God, we stand with all of the church throughout history in defending and declaring who you are and what you've come to do. We want to know you. We want to know you more and more and more. And so, Lord, would you teach us about yourself? Would you open your word to us? Would you allow us to see your beauty, your glory in such a way that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another? Remove the veil that we might behold the beauty and majesty of your person, who you've come to be for us. We need you now. I ask you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When it comes to opening gifts at the family Christmas gathering, there are really only two options. I wonder which your family does. You either do what my family did when I was growing up, and you act like piranhas at a feeding frenzy, or you do what my wife's family did, and you carefully open one gift at a time while everyone watches. Those are really the only two options for opening Christmas gifts. Seriously, you should have seen Gina's face the first Christmas she was with my family. I did not prepare her for what was about to happen because I thought that was the way everyone did it. You see, growing up, here's what my family did. We would all find a place in the living room for us to sit. You would declare your spot, and then someone, usually a young person, would gather all the presents into piles by wherever you were going to be sitting, stacked up on the chair, next to you, wherever, just a big pile of your presents. And then at some point, everyone would just start unwrapping simultaneously all at the same time, and it would take about 10 seconds. There's wrapping paper, bows, ribbons all over the place until everyone's done unwrapping. In fact, one of the most fun traditions we had in my family growing up was going back through the bags of trash when someone realizes that a valuable gift was thrown away. Pure chaos. And then it was over, and everyone said, thanks for the gifts, and we moved on to the next part. But in my wife's family, things were much different. And I was shocked the first time I experienced it. In my wife's family, they passed out gifts one at a time. And everyone watched and listened as the gift tag was announced. 
This one is to so-and-so, from so-and-so. And then that person carefully unwrapped the gift in front of everyone. In fact, I remember, Gina's going to say I'm exaggerating here, but I remember there were discussions about whether we should save the bow or wrapping paper or bag for the next Christmas. It was all done very carefully and neatly. Can you imagine the pressure I felt as I unwrapped my gifts in this environment? Like you had to have the exact right expression on your face as you opened your gift and said, oh, this is what I've always wanted. How did you know? And then everyone talked about the gift that was given until we moved on to the next one. Well, I'm not weighing in on the debate as to which way of opening gifts is better. You decide that for your own family. But here's my point. When it comes to thinking about what we are celebrating... I want us to be more like my wife's family. When it comes to thinking about what Christmas is all about, I want us to unwrap slowly, carefully, intentionally. You see, too often we fly through Christmas so quickly that the valuable gifts get thrown away with the wrapping paper. So I want to urge us, this week, let's slow down. Let's think about what we believe deeply. Let's savor what it is we are celebrating this week. Don't just rip it open and then be done. I want us to carefully and intentionally think about and ponder and meditate on exactly what it is we believe about this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And so turn with me again this Sunday to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. Last week, we saw that in the Gospel of John, John doesn't start in Bethlehem. He doesn't start with a genealogy or with a pregnant virgin or with shepherds out watching their flocks by night. John begins in the beginning. John begins with who Jesus was before His incarnation. John begins with the glory and deity of Jesus, the Son of God. So from verses 1-5, through we saw last week that Jesus is God of very God. He is eternal, not created. And Jesus is the source and sustainer of all that exists. Jesus did not begin to exist when He was conceived in the womb of Mary. That's who Jesus was before His incarnation. And this week, I want us to consider the question, what happened in the incarnation? What happened when Jesus became a man? What does the incarnation mean? Who is Jesus after His birth? Well, look at what John says in chapter 1, verse 14. He's just said, the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word made everything that is. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the inspired Word of God. May the Spirit of God illumine 
our hearts to embrace this profound miracle and mystery. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so verse 14 teaches what Christians know as the incarnation. Incarnation is not a word you'll find in the Bible. It's a word we've used to describe what John is saying here. The Son of God was incarnated. This is the Christmas truth that God took on flesh. Now, because the word incarnation sounds like such a theological word, it's not a word we use in everyday life, I think we often miss how practical and material this word is. The word is intended to be very physical. The word carne comes from the Latin word for meat, and it's often translated as flesh. And so the incarnation is the truth of the in-meeting of God, the in-fleshing of God, the eternal Word of God physically became flesh. He became touchable and seeable. He took on Himself physical flesh. That's what we mean by the incarnation. Now, here's the specific question that I want us to think about. What changed when Jesus took on flesh? What happened to Jesus' divine nature when He became a man? Who is Jesus after the Incarnation? And remember, as I said last week, we're intentionally leaving the shallow end of the theological pool and we are diving headfirst into some deep and mysterious miracles. The goal here is to intensify and zealify our worship of Jesus by seeing Him more clearly and savoring Him more passionately. As we said last week, true theology fuels doxology. The clearer we see Jesus, the more passionately we will worship Jesus. And so I want to declare three truths about what happened in the Incarnation and then give three clarifying statements about what Christians have believed and defended about the person of Jesus throughout all of history. So first, three truths about what happened in the Incarnation. I hope you'll take some notes because I want you to think about this. Here's how to intentionally unwrap the gift slowly. Think about what we believe as Christians. All of this I intend to be a meditation on and clarification of the phrase from John 1.14, the Word became flesh. What does that mean? The Word became flesh. Well, here's what it means. What happened in the incarnation? Number one, Jesus added a human nature to His divine nature. What happened in the incarnation? Here's how we could say it. Jesus added a human nature to His divine nature. Now, this is the most basic way to describe what happened in the incarnation. This sounds so simple, like we can put it in this sentence, Jesus added a human nature to His divine nature. But oh, how profound this is. No matter how simple this sounds to you, no matter how many times you've heard this, let me guarantee you, you don't fully grasp what this means. Jesus added a human nature to His divine nature. So last week we exalted in the divine nature of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. But Christmas is the celebration of God becoming a man. Christmas is the celebration that Jesus is fully human. 
So here's the mind-boggling part about what we believe about Jesus. He truly became a man. Like, not just in theory, not just, not just sort of in, uh, to, to, to people's eyes, but He actually and truly became... He didn't just look like a man. Like, we see movies all the time where like God or God-like figures come and they look like people, right? We, we, we understand what the movie's trying to portray there, but that's not what happened with Jesus. He didn't just look like a man. He didn't just have some human-like qualities. He actually took on a human nature. And let me get even more specific. Jesus took on a true human body. He took on a true human body. Flesh and blood. Nerves and organs and fingernails and kneecaps. Jesus took on not just a true human body, but He took on a true human soul. He didn't just... He didn't just exist as God in a human body. He was actually human that He had a true human soul with emotions and desires and cravings and all that having a soul means. He had a true human body. He had a true, true human soul. And thus, He was a true human. He had a true human nature. Listen, it's easy for us to, who esteem Jesus very highly to focus on His divine nature. Like That's where I'm comfortable when we're focusing on the divine nature, we love to talk about Jesus' glory and majesty and power and sovereignty. Like, I love to go to Matthew 28 and just say, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. I am God and sovereign over all. Like, that's where we like to camp and that's all true. But it's also true that Jesus is 100% man. Fully human. It's hard for us to even allow our minds to grasp this truth completely. But when we say that Jesus is fully human, we mean He was conceived in the womb and developed physically just like every other baby. He was born with blood and umbilical cord. He cried as a baby and nursed on His mother's breast. He learned to talk. He learned to walk. He learned to run. He got his knee scraped. His hair got messed up. His muscles ached. He slept. He ate. He breathed. Jesus is fully human with everything that means, yet without sin. Jesus wasn't partly human and partly God. Like He wasn't human for a while and then God for a while. He didn't transform back and forth from God to human like the Hulk transforms from Bruce to Hulk to Hulk to Bruce. That's not, that's not how He did it. Like, this is who Jesus is. 100% God, fully divine, and 100% man at the same time. This is the incarnation. This is what we believe as Christians. Jesus added a full human nature to His divine nature. Fully God, fully human. This is so central to what we believe as Christians. This is so central to what we believe. So let me try to clarify what happened in the incarnation with two more truths that make denials as to what did not happen. So, number one is what did happen. He added a human nature to His divine nature. But what actually does that mean? Well, let me make some denials as to what did not happen. Number two, Jesus did not lose His divine nature. 
When we say Jesus added a human nature to His divine nature, what we are not saying is that Jesus in any way lost His divine nature. When John says the Word became flesh, it's not saying that the Word was no longer God. Or that somehow the Word God transformed into a human. One of the reasons we know this is throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus the man is still God. Even while He was a man, He was God. John says in John 10, Jesus Himself says, I and the Father are one. So even after His incarnation, Jesus claims to be and is declared to be fully God. So maybe you're tempted to sort of rush past these truths in your mind by just thinking that God became a man means that He's now man and not God. But we know that can't be true. Because God's nature cannot change. Have you ever thought about this? God's nature cannot change. God is immutable, which means He cannot change. If God changes, He ceases to be God. This is fundamentally who God is. He is immutable. And so in the incarnation, Jesus didn't lose or give up or suspend His divine nature in any way. Everything we said about His deity last Sunday was still true about Jesus after His incarnation, and listen to this, and it's still true today about Jesus. I pointed to this truth last week when I quoted John Owen, who said this, He became what He was not, but He did not cease to be what He always was. He became what He was not. He became a man, but He did not cease to be what He always was. And that is God of very God. Everything that happened in the incarnation was a matter of addition, not subtraction. And to make this truth even more emphatic, let me add a third truth to what happened in the incarnation. Number three, Jesus did not change or dilute His divine nature in any way. He didn't lose it, and He didn't dilute it or change it in any way. Now, throughout history... This has been the most common way people have tried to reconcile the two natures of Jesus. People have come up with all manner of various theories about how Jesus altered or transformed His deity in one way or another to make it compatible with being fully man. They've claimed that somehow Jesus exchanged divinity for humanity. But the Bible clearly discourages any such attempt to say Jesus changed or diluted His deity in any way when He took on flesh. Over and over again, we see in the Bible that it affirms both the deity and humanity of Jesus at the same time. In fact, nearly every passage in the Gospels, just turn to a passage in the Gospels, and you can see it is pointing to both the humanity and deity of Jesus at the same time. But consider just one example outside the four Gospels. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. This, this verse is so important in this discussion. Let me put it up on the screen. Colossians 2, 9. Listen to what Paul says. For in Him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Notice both together. Fullness of deity and bodily humanity. 
fullness of deity, fully human. When Jesus became a man, friends, absolutely nothing changed about His essential divine nature. He didn't cease to be omnipresent. He didn't cease to be the sustainer of all things. He didn't forfeit His position in the Trinity. Everything Jesus was before the Incarnation, He was after the Incarnation. Sure, Jesus deliberately veiled His deity in order to live as a human by the power of the Spirit, but passages like the transfiguration of Jesus show that He was fully God all along, just veiling what others could see. When He took on flesh, He did not change or dilute His divine nature. I hope this doesn't seem controversial to you. This is what Bible-believing Christians have taught and defended throughout the history of the church. The most common objection to this truth that I'm seeking to declare right now is Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, I want you to turn over there. Because people say, doesn't Philippians chapter 2 say that Jesus emptied Himself when He became a man? Like, didn't Jesus empty Himself of some of His divinity when He became a human? Let's look at this passage because it's so important in this discussion. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5-8 through eight to get the context here. Here's what Paul says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So notice Paul says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, a thing to be grasped a hold of. But what did he do instead? He emptied himself, verse 7 says. The Greek verb here is the word kenosis. It literally means to empty. And so what does it mean that Jesus emptied Himself? He emptied Himself of what? Other translations say He made Himself nothing. Does this mean that He gave up part of some of His deity when He became a man? Well, there's a heresy called the kenosis theory that claims that this passage is teaching that Jesus emptied Himself of some of the attributes of God. They say He was less than God when He became a man. You see, they come to this passage and they ask the question, what did Jesus empty Himself of? It's a good question. But it's not the question this text is asking or answering. The text is not asking what did He empty Himself of. The text does not say what Jesus emptied Himself of, if anything. The text says how He emptied Himself. How did Jesus empty Himself? Well, He emptied Himself not of anything, but into something. You see that in verse 7? Jesus emptied Himself not by subtracting from, but by adding to. He emptied Himself by, quote, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul answers the question. He emptied Himself by becoming a man. He emptied Himself. He didn't grasp onto all the glory He had with the Father for all eternity to become a man for us. And so He added a human nature to His divine nature so that He's both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Fullness of God 
in bodily humanity. Fullness of God in bodily humanity. So I believe Philippians 2, 7 actually supports the rest of Scripture that declares Jesus added a human nature so as to identify with us in our weakness and be the sufficient substitute for our sins. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. So in the Incarnation, Jesus did not lose or change or transform His divine nature. 100% God and 100% man. Well, let me try to summarize what Christians have believed about Jesus. And then I'm going to teach you a big old juicy theological word that we can use to describe what it is we're saying about Jesus. So three clarifying statements. I'm going to do these quickly in an attempt to help us slow down and enjoy what we celebrate at Christmas. What is it we're saying about Jesus? Who is this Jesus who became a man? What does it mean that the Word became flesh? Three clarifying statements. Number one, Jesus is one person with two natures. Jesus is one person with two natures. Now, we should be familiar as Christians with this language. We believe in the Trinity. One God and three persons. One God and three persons. And the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, after the Incarnation, now has two natures. One person, two natures. Nowhere in all of Scripture is Jesus spoken of in the plural or as two persons. He is one person with two natures. So before the incarnation, think about this with me. Before the incarnation, Jesus was one person with one nature. Now after the incarnation, He remains one person. He added a second nature and He's now both God and man forever. One person, two natures. The church throughout history has labored hard to protect this truth about the person of Jesus. This is who our Savior is. One person with two natures. But let's keep clarifying even further. Number two, Jesus' two natures are united in perfect harmony. Jesus' two natures are united in perfect harmony. In other words... We cannot think of Jesus as having some sort of split personality or alter ego. Listen, nor should we think of Him as half man and half God. Or even three-fourths God and one-fourth man. Jesus is fully God and fully man in perfect harmony. He has no disunity or division in Himself. This should be mind-boggling to us. And we accept it as true even if we can't wrap our minds around it completely. Two natures in perfect harmony together. But let's keep clarifying one more step. Number three, Jesus' two natures are not merged together in any way. Jesus' two natures are not merged together in any way. Jesus' divinity and humanity are united together but not mixed together. Jesus is not some kind of third being. Neither God nor man, but a mixture of two. That's not how we're to think about Him. Jesus is not God-deluded or man-strengthened. 
I'll be honest with you, as a young Christian, I think that's the way I thought about him. That he was just a little bit less than God and a little bit more than man. That's not who he is. He is fully God and fully man, united but not mixed in one person. It is incalculably precious and awe-inspiring to know that Jesus' two natures are perfectly united in His one person. Jesus is not divided. He's not two people. He is one person. And as the Chalcedonian Creed from 451 A.D. states, His two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Jesus is one person with two natures. Now this mystery, this miracle that we're describing is known by theologians by a certain phrase. And I want to give this to you as the Christmas gift that you didn't put on your list this year, but you needed to hear this. All of this is known as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Say that with me. The hypostatic union. One more time. The hypostatic union. I hope we have some kids that grow up in our church and just remember when they were 10 years old, 12 years old. Man, my pastors taught me about the hypostatic union. So use this big phrase at your next Christmas or New Year's party and see, see what people think about the hypostatic union when you bring it up. The hypostatic union is the reality that Jesus is one person with two natures, united but not intermingled. But the question is, and I'll conclude with this, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Like, why take all this time? Does it really matter? That's the million-dollar question. And listen, we could answer that question in a thousand different ways. There are a lot of different ways we could go answering this, but let me answer it like this. Only God can forgive us of our sin. Only God can forgive us of our sin. Only God has the power to absolve us of our guilt. And so who better to come to us? God didn't send an angel. He didn't send a messenger to forgive us. He Himself came. Our God has come. John says He came, John 1, 14-18, to reveal Himself to us, to give grace and truth to us, to give us the fullness of His grace. So listen, if in any way Jesus lost or changed or diluted His divinity, His coming wouldn't solve our deepest problem, the problem of our sin. If Jesus in any way lost His divine nature, then we are without salvation because only God can forgive us of our sin. But also, only a man can truly be our substitute and our great high priest. You see, we needed a perfect representative, a representative just like us, yet without sin. And so if Jesus wasn't fully human, if He only seemed to be human but wasn't really, then friends, He wouldn't be a sufficient sacrifice in our place. He wouldn't be able to impute His perfect righteousness to our account and justify us before the Father if He was not truly human. If He was not fully human, then He has no righteousness to transfer to our account. And so only the God-man, fully God, fully man, could solve the deepest problems of our sin and the condemnation that we all deserve. Listen, I'm, I'm sure you've gotten some pretty cool Christmas gifts in your life. 
but none as meaningful as this. None as meaningful as this. God became a man to forgive us of our sin and to restore a right relationship with Himself. Jesus took on flesh to represent us, to be our substitute, to be the offering that we couldn't offer. He Himself is the offering that we need. God has made the offering to appease His wrath. We haven't offered the offering. We don't come to God with our good deeds and hope that it's enough. He has provided the perfect substitute to stand in our place to represent us. And so this Christmas, as you slow down, as you contemplate the gifts of this season, praise God that Jesus is fully God. Praise Him specifically that He is fully God, that He didn't give up any of His that He's creator and sustainer of all. He is with us and He is for us. Praise God that Jesus is fully God, but also praise God that Jesus is fully human. Spend time thanking God that Jesus was the perfect representative for us, our perfect high priest. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory full of grace and truth. So church family, after meditating on the nature of Jesus these past couple Sundays, I've been asking myself this question. Is it possible to give Jesus too much honor? Is it possible to worship Him too passionately? Is it possible to be too zealous for Him? Is it possible to think too highly of this Savior? Because I guarantee you, this world that's opposed to God would say, yeah, it's possible to be too zealous for religious things. Oh, you you, you care about that stuff too much. But friends, the answer is no, it's not possible. In fact, may we banish that thought from our minds this Christmas. It is impossible to be too passionate about this Savior. It's impossible to speak to Him about Him to others too much. It's impossible to follow Him with too much zeal. It's impossible to follow Him too closely. But rather, friends, our problem, my problem, is that we're way too used to just giving Jesus passing glances. We're way too used to just giving Him a little bit of our time, a little bit of our lives, giving Him a little bit of the glory, but not too much. In church, I say we don't hold back this Christmas. In pursuing Jesus, I say we go full throttle. He is worth it. He is that valuable. He is that precious. He is worth giving your all and your everything to have and to pursue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is worth our total and full devotion. So slow down and enjoy this gift to the max. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Well, God, I pray. He would fill us with wonder. So much wonder that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory, in the light of Your grace. Oh God, I pray that You would fill us with zeal that accompanies this truth. Zeal that accords with the reality that our Savior is both 100% God and 100% man. Oh God, I pray that You would keep us from denying the truth about Jesus. But even more than that, I pray that You would keep us from knowing the truth and not caring about it. Lord, help us to be zealous about these things. I pray You'd help us in the great name of Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing, Come Behold.